Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Inside ND Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football, recruiting, and more for InsideNDSports.com on the Rivals Network. Notre Dame doesn't have long to put the pieces together following a shocking 33-20 loss at Louisville on Saturday night. The number 10 undefeated USC Trojans come to town Saturday night trying to keep their national championship hopes alive. Notre Dame's offense put together a second straight poor performance last weekend, and a lot of that had to do with an offensive line that struggled to establish a running game and couldn't protect Sam Hartman. To talk about the Irish offensive line, we brought in a big gun, former Notre Dame offensive tackle Sam Young, who played in the NFL for over a decade. Sam, thanks for joining us. Appreciate you having me. Sam, this this is kind of a broad question and maybe an impossible question to answer, but how do you get an offensive line out of a funk? That is a tough question. I think, uh, you know, kind of going to your initial comment, you know, a lot of my experience to get the ball rolling, if you will, is, you know, handing the ball off, establishing that run game. And, you know, I think, too, from like a pass protection point of view, I think it's, uh, you know, getting early wins in a game, right? Whether that's a play action pass, whether that's a quick three-step drop, you know, instilling the confidence in the guys up front that, hey, you know, we're going to be here all day. We're going to be doing our jobs and and taking care of what we need to take care of. You know, the your evolution was interesting because you, you came at a time where Notre Dame had a veteran team and they plugged you in as a freshman into that offensive line. Then the whole roster turns over the next year. And I think Notre Dame and I'm not picking on you, I, um, gave up a C or NCAA record number of sacks that year. Mm-hmm. So what was that experience like? And what, what were, was the eventual fix that that wasn't repeated in 2008 and 2009? And is it just a matter of experience or were there things that happened that, that changed the tenor of that line? Sure. No, it, it was, uh, you know, it was a rough year. Like you said, we we had had a solid campaign my freshman year and uh, graduated a lot of really good players and had folks that, you know, were still trying to cut their teeth, get their experience, try to figure out what it's like playing in front of 80,000 people. Uh, you know, you bring up that year, and I remember, I think it was Michigan. Um I think we had like negative two rushing yards that game. So you all time, you know, that that's probably a record in and of itself. Right. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when reflecting on that year, yeah, it was, it was inexperienced. It was, you know, I hate to use the expression, but a little bit of trial by fire where you have to take your lumps and you don't want to do that. You want to be able to continue momentum and build every week. And I think, you know, towards probably call it the middle of the season, you know, starting to build momentum might have not been as evident on the outside looking in, but you started to establish, okay, this is kind of our identity. And then, you know, the next two years, you know, the offense took a dramatic jump, Um, you know, and as a group of, you know, offensive line coach and offense coordinator, coach Weiss included, made it a point of pride that, hey, you know, we're going to learn from this experience. We're not going to let this happen again, and we're going to move forward. But, uh, but yeah, to, to answer your question, I think it's an experience thing. I think it's a mindset thing, too. Um, and to go back, you know, it's just starting to get those little wins, and I think it has that snowball effect where, hey, you know what? Like, we had a game where we're able to, say, average five yards a carry. Okay, you know what? This is now our identity. And same applies to pass protection as well. And for those, I didn't do a good job of introducing that question. Sam was on a BCS team in 2006 when Brady Quinn was the quarterback. 2007, Jimmy Clausen came in. It was a complete roster turnover almost. They went three and nine. And then two really good offensive teams in 2008 and 2009. Okay, Tyler. Yeah, Sam. You sort of alluded to it without talking about confidence specifically, but how 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 important is confidence to an offensive line, and and, and not only just individual confidence, but confidence in the guys next to you as well. Yeah, 
you know, I keep thinking of all these these sayings, and you know, I had one coach. Uh, you know, he always would say, "If you think, you stink." And for such a cerebral position as the offensive line, you have to make all these adjustments. To your point, you have to work in unison. But there is kind of that that fine line where, you know, to the confidence standpoint, I, I used to always think about, you know, you're in the huddle and you think about the play. Okay, what's my assignment? But once you get to the line of scrimmage, that quarterback starts the cadence. It, it's almost like you're on autopilot. You have to have a full trust, a full confidence, your ability to execute and get the job done. Um, and and that goes the same with the guy playing to your left, playing to your right. Uh, you know, best offensive lines I've been a part of, you could just nod to the guy next to you and know that what you guys are going to do. Uh, it's, it's almost, it's hard to explain, um, but it's that full trust, that full confidence that, hey, you know what, if I'm a little out of position, my buddy's going to help me out. Hey, you know, we're, we're executing this block. I know he's going to set me up so I can take it over and he's going to climb to the next level, spring our running back. So I, I think... You know, in terms of the confidence, it's just the ability to you know, about your technique and how am I setting my angles on this pass. It's it's, it's playing free and, you know, all these things that the game's really about, um, as opposed to trying to overanalyze, you know, how are we going to get better on this particular play? I wanted to ask you a couple questions in a row. I want to preface it with this. When you watch a Notre Dame game, are you watching the linemen and yes. analyzing it, or are you watching <laughs> the ball and where it goes? <laughs> uh, I can't help but watch the offensive line. Okay. Uh, I think it's it's ingrained. I, I will say I've gotten better uh, since I've, I've retired. I've gotten better at being able to watch the ball and where it's going, but I, I do still find myself drawn to, you know, whether it's the protection or the the scheme, what what have you. Um, and even I think it's on, on some of the broadcasts now, uh, not, in, not in college, but some of the pro broadcasts, you can kind of get the zoomed out all 22 or, you know, end zone copies. Right. Um, you know, like if I go to a game, I want to sit as high as I can in the end zone so I can watch <laughs> plays developing. So that that's going to be a hard habit to break. But um, I, I don't overanalyze too much. I, I think, you know, I'll maybe have a thought to myself here or there in terms of like, oh, you know, he, he was a little quick on that block or, oh, that was, you know, really good leverage, something to that extent. But, uh, yes, I answer your question, Eric. <laughs> I, I am an offensive lineman. I, I do appreciate the uh, the intricacies of the position. Okay. So having said that, um, you know, Notre Dame did something that I haven't seen them do. I don't remember the last time I saw it in a game that wasn't affected by injury other than one time. There was one year where two guys shared the right tackle spot and it was Tommy Kramer and Robert Hainsey and it seemed to work out, but they decided to rotate in the Louisville game. They rotated some of the interior linemen, including the center. And I thought, man, given what you said about nodding to the guy next to you and you've been next to each other for six, seven weeks, it would seem like that is really difficult in the flow of a game. Am I overestimating the difficulty of that? I think there's something to it, um, but I would say my perspective is, you know, whether it's college pro, what have you, you're constantly rotating guys in and out. And whether that's something as simple as, hey, you have a 10 play period and someone needs to get a drink of water. All right. We need a new center for a play. So you you have to constantly, you know, rotate in and, and you know, the trust to your point is not just those five guys on the line. You know, it's the whole roster, and I'll even take that to, you know, the folks watching on the sideline. You know, when you come over, coach is talking to you, the backup right tackles, usually talking to the guy ahead of them saying, hey, you know, be careful on this or really good job on that. So it's, it's yes, like there is some adjustment, right? Every player has their intricacies, but I, I don't know. I, I personally don't think it's a monumental deal to have some of this um rotation if you will in the line gotcha and, and sam what would be the key to make sure that that works best and what 
is in your mind is there a best way to implement it would it be like one series to the next series is it i i it wasn't really clear what notre dame's plan was it was a few series into the game they brought in a new left guard and a new center at the same time and then then later the center returned and then the guy that was playing left guard moved over to right guard so i'm just like it, it was one thing to rotate, but it was also like, well, okay, now you got a backup left guard who's, or who's playing left guard and right guard in the same game. It seemed like a, a sort of a strange way to go about it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and it could be any number of things. It could be, you know, preparation coaches saw during the week um, to say, you know, we want to give this guy more reps. Um, you know, he might've been, been doing a good job, but um, yeah, it's tough. I mean, the more complicated you make it sure, you know, that can, can add a, additional, um, you know, factors, but like I said, I, I've seen it done a number of ways. Like I know, you know, in my time playing in the pros, like there was a game where it was, you know, two series, one series, one series, two series. And it was kind of just as the get game dictated, there wasn't necessarily a, a pure game plan. And then there's other situations where, you know, it's every series, but that's, you know, the coaches must've seen a, something, whether that was in, the preparation for for Louisville in particular, or whether that was during the, you know, their own periods during the week where they say, hey, you know what, I like the way this is looking, we should, you know, implement this in a particular fashion. When you're watching the game, do you coach the offensive line? Do you problem solve? (laughs) Or do you, are you able to just kind of say, you know what, I had my time, let these guys figure it out. Uh, probably the combination thereof. So I, I had my first, uh, I guess, taste of coaching, you know, this, uh, this summer moved back down to South Florida and was helping out of my old alma mater, uh, for their like training camp. And, you know, I, there's certainly, you know, like my style is very much like, Hey, you know, um, let's think about what you did. You know, for example, if you overset, okay, let's, let's change how you're, thinking about your landmarks. Um, with all be- being said, you know, my, I wouldn't say I'm overly critical, overly analytical. I'll see, you know, you continuing that example. If a guy oversets, you know, probably mutter under my breath, can't do that. My wife looks at me like I'm crazy, but, um, you know, it's just little, little things I can't help but notice and uh, kind of coach up to, you know, like I said, my wife and my dog who have no interest in my coaching points. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned your alma mater. We had Bobby Brown on last week. And so two weeks in a row with St. Thomas Aquinas guys on the podcast. Um, there you go. Notre Dame has transitioned this season to a heavy polling team on the offensive line. What what are the challenges of that? What are What are the positives that that brings to an offensive line in a running game? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, pulling, it's, I, I would brand it, you know, kind of power football, um, you know, because you're, you know, in a traditional like power scheme, you know, you're, you're having to down block, you're having to reestablish a line of scrimmage, um, you know, and also if you're starting to do sweeps, now you're getting defenses running laterally. So I think there is, you know, uh, you know, the a pin and pull system, as some might call it. I mean, there's definitely validity to that. I think it can work um, complementing itself, whether, you know, like I said, with kind of that power scheme where you're downhill reestablishing the line of scrimmage or you're kind of toss sweeping and now you're able to extend and create holes horizontally on the field. Um, but what I like about it is as offensive lineman, you can't really be wrong. Um you're able to kind of go downhill. Usually you're working with a buddy in a combination block and you're basically basically allowed to impose your will. So going back to what we started this conversation with, you know, I think it's a great way um, when, you know, to be able to build confidence, to instill, you know, a certain brand of football that I think, you know, Notre Dame has, you know, in its, its long story history, you know, call it, you, you, this I don't want to say smash mouth, but like this power football. Sure. Um, so I, like I said, I think it can really work. And then coupled into the pass game, you know, some of the best play action protections I, I personally thought were off those types of movements. You can really 
get the linebackers to step up, create these vertical seams and, and hit home run balls. When you look at Notre Dame's offensive line, Sam, what's your level of optimism that they can figure this out and be a much they were expected to be a much better offensive line among the teams in the country. What's your expectation that they could actually meet that, that they could um, be a much improved offensive line over the back half of the season? I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic and I, you know, I'll zoom out a little bit to say, you know, this was a quite the stretch for the team, right? You have three primetime games all in a row. Two of those are away. Um, and, Anytime Notre Dame comes to town, you're getting the fan base's best, right? Um, and, you know, I think you look at the Ohio State game, you look at the Duke game. Ohio State, you're a play away. Uh, Duke game, you found a way to scratch and claw and win that game. And, and Louisville, you know, didn't go the way anyone was hoping for it to go. But with all that being said, I think, you know, going into – what was always my favorite game of the year in USC, you know, it's a great way, um, you know, to reset, reestablish, you know, sometimes the best thing that can happen is a situation like this. Again, you don't want it to, but it's just, it, it provides like a refocus, a re-clarity. And, you know, I guess this is, you could call it somewhere in the midpoint of the season and allow, you know, the guys up front to, you know, recommit to, you know, Eric, as you said, kind of being that dominant force that, um, you know, at least I, I'm optimistic they can be. Sam, do you think there's anything to the struggles that Notre Dame has had coming on the road, playing in, in road game environments and, and Notre Dame um, now being able to come home and play in front of its home crowd? Yeah, I think no better place, right, than Notre Dame. And, you know, with all the uh, – the great additions that the university has made to the stadium. I think it's just a special atmosphere. Again, a night game, USC, I mean, what can be better? Um, and so, you know, from, you know, I put myself back in those student athlete shoes. Hey, you don't have to hop on the plane. You don't have to go sleep in a, a hotel room. You get to, you get to kind of be in your own environment. And so, yeah, there, there's certainly, I think, an advantage to that, um, you know, not having to to deal with some of those outside forces. Like I said, I, my personal opinion is Notre Dame playing on the road is is one of the hardest things that any college has to do. And yes, I'm including the SEC, uh, <laughs> even though I might some might not agree with me on that. But, uh, you know, every place you go, you get the the most hostile environment because everyone shows up to watch Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the, the New York Yankees, Manchester United, Notre Dame, right? You love them or hate them. And um, so I think having the opportunity to come home, another great, uh, great opponent, I think it will be good for the team. I remember talking to your dad at some point about the recruiting process for you. And I remember him bringing up USC. So my, Questions are this one you mentioned USC being kind of your favorite game. Why is that? And number two, how close did you come to wanting to commit to them? Uh, I'll answer your second question first. So yeah. I only took two official trips. I took one to Notre Dame and one to USC. Um, really, really thought they had a great program at that time. I mean, they were firing on all cylinders, um, you know, but ultimately I would go back if I could take a time machine would make the decision a hundred times out of a hundred would go to Notre Dame. And so I'm very glad I, I wouldn't say it was particularly close, but yeah, they were certainly, uh, you know, someone that I was looking at closely um, in terms of the game. I don't know, maybe it was coach Weiss. I mean, the whole week, all we heard was the victory March and, you know, he's coming in and, uh, it's just such a great rivalry game. And like, for me, it was the USD game, Michigan, Michigan state, those games just felt different. Um, and whether that was the, the feeling on campus, the feeling in the building, it, it was just a special, special game for me. I, I always enjoyed it. And, and again, at that time, USC was kind of the high watermark. So to go against them to, you know, to try and beat them, which, you know, wasn't able to do in my career, but 
um, you know, that was always kind of what we, you know, it was just a big game that you wanted to be at your best. And of course, wanted to win. Sam, it is midterms week uh, on campus. What is it like playing or preparing for a football game during midterms week? It's uh, it's tough, uh, you know, especially I think for, for younger guys that you know haven't been through that before. I, I think for me, my freshman year was most challenging, just because I'd leave my dorm room at six o'clock in the morning to go to morning workouts, wouldn't get back till ten thirty, eleven at night by the time I was done with study halls, and um, you know, it's a it's an adjustment and going through that first period of of midterms. Um, you know, it, it's tough, but, uh, you know, I, I know I had a lot of support, whether that was from the university or student, the different student resources to help me prepare to, you know, allocate my time appropriately, make sure I was prepared for the game, but also to do well in the classroom. And, um, you know, I think once you get that that first year under your belt and you get into the rhythm. So I, I personally don't make too much of it, but I know for some of the younger folks, you know, might be. Might be a little tough, you know, having having those those first exams and and trying to make sure they're doing well on them. So for our listeners who aren't old enough to remember, Sam Young was one of the top ten recruits in his class at any position um, coming out in the two thousand six cycle, and yet Sam, you were always plugged into that four for forty message, even when you were at Notre Dame and and the thought that there was going to be this long pro career and you did have a long pro career, but even then when you were in the NFL, it seemed like you were always doing those academic internships and so forth. I wondered how the four for 40 message is paying off for you and why were you so invested? Sure. Um, yeah, very simply. I mean, my mom, high school English teacher still to this day and, you know, uh, education was always very important and the opportunity to, you know, come to Notre Dame and not only play at, you know, the, the most historically significant uh, program in the country, but also to get, you know, an incredible education. I mean, that's, that's pretty tough to turn down. Now you layer in the four for 40 and I know whether it was on campus or even to this day, the alumni network, um, is just incredible. And, you know, there's, there's Notre Dame is worldwide. They're everywhere. And, uh, it's just such an amazing community, um, to be a part of. And, you know, as far as, you know, my career and taking that, I mean, I, you know, when I retired from the NFL, I went back to school, just finished getting my MBA. And so, you know, it's something that I've always, um, taking seriously in my own development to want to, you know, continue to um, build and, and grow, you know, be a lifetime learner, if you will. But, uh, you know, now we talked about my kids earlier. It's, you know, something I want them to see dad doing that he's, you know, constantly looking to, you know, better himself, see the value of the education and to, you know, be successful in the future in a different type of arena away from the field. Sam, what are you up to in, in your pr professional life now? What's what are the goals and and things that you are trying to achieve off the field now? And how old are your kids? <laughs> uh, kids, kids are uh, five and two, and uh, they are uh, they're the best. Uh, they're you know no football for them. Two girls, but uh, you know they're 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 loving it, and um, they're they're just the joy to be around. As far as you know up to, you know, graduate, like I mentioned, recently graduated from master's, moved back down to South Florida. And, um, you know, we start and work here soon, but I think, you know, for me in terms of goals and you know, the way I've kind of thought about this, you know, uh, if you want to be metaphorical about it, my life is a three act play, mm -hmm. excuse me. And, um, you know, kind of act one was football and it's an experience that, I'll, I'll, I wouldn't trade for the world, probably played a lot longer than even I thought, but I'm, I'm grateful for every minute. And now, you know, had that kind of intermission, going back to school and, and developing new new skills and reapplying those I've, I've built on the field uh, to a new domain and excited for act two. And, you know, we'll, we'll see, like I said, back in South Florida um, 
and just excited to, you know, kind of dive into this next chapter. Well, awesome, Sam. We appreciate you taking time to join us and wish you the best of luck in your career moving forward. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. Before we get to our question segment, I wanted to remind our listeners of a new promo we're offering for InsideNDSports.com. We're offering a 30-day free trial to our podcast listeners who want to try out a subscription to Inside ND Sports. That will get you access to all of our premium content, the Insider Lounge message board, and you do not have to wait for the next podcast to ask us a question that we will happily answer it on the Insider Lounge. You can take advantage of this offer by using promo code NDPOD. That's N-D-P-O-D. When you sign up for a subscription on InsideNDSports.com, you can also find a link to the deal in the podcast description or show notes. All right, now it's time for questions. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at TJamesND and Eric's at HansonND. First one I have for us, Eric, is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie and... As you can imagine, she wants grades again. What grade would you eat? Would each of you give the offensive game plan from Saturday when Marcus Freeman says he is okay with the calls and it's all about execution? Do you believe him or do you think that is just coach speak? What would each of you do to fix the offense and try to salvage the season? So I would give the results of the game plan an F. It was season lows in rushing yards, 44, one of the lowest totals since 2010 in any game 298 total yards was a season low three of 15 on third and fourth downs a season high five sacks season high five turnovers they didn't seem to be prepared to deal with the loaded box and they didn't seem to react well to it so I guess you could give that element of it an F uh there were execution errors and I do think that it was exacerbated by the offensive line rotation I think Sam was being a little bit diplomatic in his answer but I do value his his perspective I mean he's a really good offensive lineman he played on some really good teams and a really bad team um and then um as far as was Marcus okay with this I think if he was not okay with the play calling, he would not make it public. Um, I don't know for sure whether he was or not. My suspicion is that he did have some issues with it. Um, how would I go about fixing this? I would decide who are my best five linemen. And if I'm going to make a change, I'm going to do it in the first bye week. So I would get through this week with the guys that have been playing together, especially when you're going to see a lot of movement, a lot of blitzing, I'd want the guys that were used to each other. And then I would look at, as you go through the game plans further, how best to unload the box. What's the best strategy to do that? Because you're going to continue to see it. And I think part of that is which wide receivers are your best wide receivers mm-hmm. and and which plays are your best plays to accomplish that. So I think those things are all kind of bundled for me. Yeah, I would give the game plan a D plus. Um, I didn't like how they came out throwing. Um, clearly, the confidence in the running game seemed to not be there, for my opinion. And the rotation off the, on the offensive line speaks to the lack of confidence in the interior offensive line. I think Notre Dame is bringing too many hats into the box with too many tight end sets when I don't know that you're getting enough out of those tight ends as blockers um, to make it worthwhile and then also like you're not using those tight ends enough out of those sets as passing targets to keep the defense honest um and so those things are working against uh Notre Dame I I I believe it's coach speak from Marcus Freeman that he didn't have a problem with the play calls um I think it's like you can talk about fixing the execution you can go back and and work on that you can't really change what plays were called um, but I do think that has to inform what plays will be called in the future. And if you can't execute those plays, then they're bad play calls because you shouldn't be calling plays that you can't execute. Um, and so you have to figure out where that disconnect is happening. Um, I would try to establish the run without 12 personnel. Um, if I were Notre Dame, get try to keep extra linebackers and safeties out of the box. Use some swing passes 
um, to get guys like Jeremiah Love and Janarian Price um, into the into the open field with some space. You can even do that with Chris Tyree out of the backfield in some ways. Um, I think there's just better ways to – sort of like what Sam was talking about with getting the offensive line confident. You don't have to, like, make the offensive line be – the focal point of every play. Like I, I know if you're a great offensive line, you want that to happen, but Notre Dame's not a great offensive line right now. Um, and I, I, one thing that I've noticed is that it seems to me that defenses are blitz, blitzing from the backside very heavily and it is working with high, with a, at a high rate. So I would try to keep the backside honest, whether that's maybe that's some read options, um, do some different things to, expose what defenses are doing to um to have an impact on Notre Dame's running game. All right, Josh Ross, Josh Ross at J Ross ND, what has happened to this offensive line? We knew the interior was going to have growing pains, but it seems everyone not named Joe Alt has really floundered. Is there an explanation for Blake Fisher's huge regression? I mean, when we talked to him at the before the year, uh, before the season started, he was locked in, um, and he did have his best game per Pro Football Focus against Ohio State, and there were two five-star defensive ends on that team. Um, you know, maybe he's putting too much pressure on himself. It could be a product of Rocco's growing pains, although Rocco's pass blocking has improved dramatically per pro football focus since like the second and third games of the season. Uh, most of them have not done well run blocking. I mean, I just remember what were Quentin Nelson's growing pains were or Mike McGlinchey's. It usually was against teams that had a lot of pre-stamp movement that did a lot of stemming and stunning. And then once they learned to deal with that, they became stars and instead of, you know, flashing really good moments and having some difficulties. That would be my best assessment of it without talking to Joe Rudolph. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't think Fisher's regression has been huge. I think that it would be an overstatement. I think specifically with Blake Fisher, I think the perception expectations for him, like were too far in advance. I think it was too high. I think, and, and so he hasn't met those. Um, he hasn't taken that leap. I think Blake Fisher was good, not great last season. This this season, he's been closer to average than great, I think, for the most part. But, and so I think that has a lot to what, what people are, are seeing from Blake Fisher. I don't think Blake Fisher is terrible. Um, I think that would be overstating it as well. I think teams are testing his quickness. Um, and sometimes he has to adjust to that. Maybe it's... He's not anticipating well enough, um, and maybe maybe playing on the road and working with silent counts is is impacting that as well. So um, hopefully the, he looks better back in Notre Dame Stadium when Notre Dame can use a normal cadence and and get get things firing off the ball. In terms of the whole O line, it just seems like a crisis of confidence sort of across the board. When you have two new guards, that was there was going to be moments where there was shaking confidence in those guys, but I think it's sort of like overcome the line. I think Spindler struggled at first and I think he recovered a bit. Now Coogan's struggling more. Um, and, and I don't think Z Carell is, is good enough between them to manage that. Um, and so I think it's sort of just sort of grown from there. And then you match that with play calling. That's maybe not setting them up to succeed. And uh, it just sort of snowballs uh, from, from there uh, when you when you talk about this offensive line. All right, Alan at Alan Sturgill has a couple of questions. Uh, the Irish used to play the best five offensive linemen on Saturday. It seemed they treated Louisville as a testing ground. Will the Irish play the best five moving forward? And secondly, what is your opinion of the wide receiver room? Do they have the talent to separate from a defense? The playing the best offensive five offensive linemen is Joe Rudolph's concept as well. I remember talking to him about that last spring. Um, and are they playing the best five? I, I mean, the guys that were on the cusp that, that were challenging for positions were Wagner, Baker, Shrouth, and Christophic. You know, 
I was surprised Christophic wasn't one of the, I mean, Shrouth wasn't one of the best five. And I think, you know, Wagner could make a strong case for that as well. I think if he were a little bit bigger physically, he can make an even stronger case. And I think he's probably going to be one of the top five next year. Uh, but the fact that they did rotate in the game, I guess, I guess the upside of that is that they're open to debate about who the best five are. And again, I think the bye week will present them a chance to recalibrate and and see if there's different people in there and maybe go with a different lineup. It worked in 2021 when when Joe Alt and Andrew Kostovic, um were plugged in kind of mm-hmm. a third of the way through the season. Um, as far as the wide receiver room, I think there is talent there. I think there is speed, uh, but I don't think it's refined talent at this point. And I'm not blaming Chancey Stuckey. I mean, it is a young room. You think about who the leading receivers were last year, the guy that caught the most passes for Notre Dame last year as a wide receiver is a deep backup cornerback at Ohio state right now. Um, you know, in, in Jared Parker's offense is different than Tommy Reese's, which is different than Brian Kelly's, but there's an element of it that's kind of stayed the same. And that's when, when Notre Dame has had a field receiver who could command a defensive coordinator to at least consider double teams on that receiver or really pay a big price. It seems like it opens up the rest of the offense. And when they haven't had that, it seems like it's easier to defend Notre Dame and get them into this one dimensional uh, pickle that they have to work their way out of. If you think back about the Will Fuller teams, how well that worked. And even with um, Kevin Stefferson, when he stepped up and was able to be that guy for, for part of a season, it really seemed to loosen things up with the rest of the offense. So I think, I think Tobias Merriweather has the speed to separate. I just don't think he's playing well enough to do that right now. And I think the coaches see that. And then Rico Flores, I also think he does, but I'm not sure that he can grasp all the nuances that are being thrown at him and, and have that look like that. Um, you know, certainly Cam Williams coming next year will be another wide receiver with a, a ton of talent. And I think that'll help. But again, it'll be a young receiver. So I don't know that you have the experience talent quotient, but I don't think that they're lacking talent. Yeah. And that, it's a position group that really couldn't afford to have the injury issues that it's having. Um, and I think that throws right. things off when guys aren't getting the same amount of practice time as they should. Um that group is not good enough to just sort of be like, oh, we'll be fine if we miss some practices. And so I think overall the room has been subpar. Uh, No one out on the outside seems to be creating consistent separation. I don't know that who you trust to make jump ball catches right now. Um, And I, I think maybe the two people who have met or surpassed expectations are the freshmen, Jaden Greyhouse and Rico Flores. Like, I thought Jaden Thomas would be better. I thought Tobias Merriweather would be better. Um, I thought Chris Tyree would be more further along. Yeah, the, the Chris Tyree one is is strange to me. I, I like you have to acknowledge that he definitely missed an opportunity for a touchdown against uh, Louisville. I I th- feel like for the most part, it feels good when they get him the ball, and he's he's done some good things, but it just hasn't been consistent enough and so i don't know if that's him not getting open um a hesitancy to throw to the the kind of routes that they're giving to him or what's going on there um so it just as a, as a group they're not they're not meeting expectations and i think if sam hartman had the trust in them there there wouldn't be there wouldn't be the issues that we're seeing i mean some of the there were some throws in the Louisville game that Hartman just like didn't even give his guys a chance. And I was like, well, does that mean he's just afraid of those guys not being able to make a play? So he's just sort of like throwing it way over Rico Flores' head um, or way uh, ahead of Jaden Thomas. So he can't make a play. Um, I don't, I don't know what, what exactly is going on there, but it's not, it's not, uh, it's not uh, being successful. And then 
As for will the Irish play the best five moving forward, I I mean, I don't know that I can say with certainty what they're going to do after what it did on Saturday. <laughs> I don't it, it, it seemed odd to me. Is Billy Strouth one of the best five? I, I don't know. Um, he had some good moments and he had some bad moments, which, I mean, that's sort of what you'd expect. Um, and if you, I mean, that's, that was what you're going to get from any of those guys at guard. And so I, I don't know if, if you want to go sort of like back to the drawing board and, and deal with his ups and downs when you're also dealing with the ups and downs of Pat Coogan and Rocco Spindler. So, um, well, I'm not only interested in what the offensive line looks like against USC, but like Eric mentioned, like coming out of the bye, is there is that at the time for a more like significant and permanent change? And what does that look like? I think those are questions that we don't have answers to yet. The next question is from at Charles W. Wolf. What are your perspectives on third and short calls? Estime seems to seems like he was sculpted by Michelangelo for those situations. But Jared Parker seems to keep calling more exotic looks. I know Estimate got stuff, but the line formation looks strange to me. Well, I mean, the part of the line that seems to have, be having the most issues is the interior part of the line. Can you count on Zeke Corral to move the pile when you're doing, uh, let's say, let's take Audric out of that, say that you're doing a quarterback sneak with a 6'1", 210-pound quarterback, you know, it's different than when, let's say, Deshaun Kaiser is back there and you have a 6'5", 235-pound guy. And same with Dane Chris, some of the bigger quarterbacks Notre Dame's had. Um, you know, I th- I've thought about it. Um, and I don't think that you can do Audric every time. I think that you have to be a little bit creative sometime to keep – the defense guessing. I mean, if they stack 11 people up there, Audric's not going to run through 11 people if they know that that's the play you're going to do on every third and one or fourth and one. Uh, I think he's a really good option, but I also think, you know, maybe the Mitchell Evans package needs to come back, the Mitchell Palooza package. I mean, again, then you have a six foot five guy, 251 pound guy who can handle the ball and, uh, you know, you could push him from behind, but uh, I I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think that just giving it to Audric on every third and fourth down is and short is the answer. Yeah, I mean, they're bringing everyone into the box, which is, is normal for like a goal line or a short yarded situation. Um, but they're doing that, and then they leave too many guys unblocked. If you can't block them all, you need to come up with a different plan. And I, I don't know how much of it is plan, how much of it is mistakes by the offense of players. I would tend to believe it was more mistakes, but sometimes they're leaving backside guys un, unattended to, and is the message not being communicated well enough that hey Blake Fisher if this guy's blitzing here and you're on the backside you need to cut his path off rather than worry about the defensive end to the outside um those are different things that Notre Dame has to figure out um a plan for because they're, they're those guys are making a difference in the play um we did see some play action looks off of that uh against NC State that was successful there was the one against Ohio State that was not successful, but Notre Dame hasn't gone back to it since, at least to my knowledge. Um, and so I think they're going to have to consider bringing that back into play as well and uh, figure out something. That, that I don't know. When you see the play that they ran on third and one with the, hand, the attempted handoff to Chris Tyree, to me that that shows a team that does not have confidence in, in a short yardage play call right now because that – that's not a play call you come up with if you have confidence in the plays already <laughs> that you've been using. So um, they got they have to they have to have bread and butter third and short plays, and if they don't, they got to find some new ones or find a different plan of attack because it's it's not working. If 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 you can't run the ball, why don't you spread them out? And you can still try to run the ball from a spread out formation, but maybe maybe you have to trust Mitchell Evans to catch a third and one pass every once in a while or something like that. Ohio State had similar issues. I mean, they ran Egbuka on uh, the fourth and one that where yep. Notre Dame did stop Ohio State. 
um, deep in Notre Dame territory. And then on would have been second and goal since they spiked the ball on first down. So second and goal, they threw to Marvin Harrison, I believe, on the one-yard line before they ran it in on third down. So they have some of the same issues as well. Yeah, I think the pass play, at least the second and goal one, was related to not having another timeout. So they needed to pass it in order to have another chance to run another play. Um, But I do agree that they were definitely – hesitant to run the ball in short yardage situations uh, in a more conventional way because it just didn't feel like they could win at the point of attack in those situations. And Ohio State isn't supposed – Notre Dame's supposed to have a better offensive line than Ohio State. And uh, the last two games, Notre Dame's offensive line doesn't necessarily look like it has a better offensive line than Ohio State. All right. Next question is from at NDJeff06. When, we will, when will we start to see Jared Parker use motion to help identify the defense – and this leads to when will Parker allow Hartman to call an audible at the line when the box is stacked? Seems like Freeman and company are not trusting of the sixth year signal caller in that regard. As far as let, let me answer the second part of that first, and then I'll probably let you do the motion thing, um, Tyler. But, it, you know, when we had talked to Jared Parker earlier in the year, it did sound like Sam Hartman had a lot of freedom to make audibles at the line of scrimmage and they were comfortable with him doing it. When Mark Freeman was asked about that on Monday, he seemed to hint that, yeah, Sam has some latitude there. And yet there are some plays where they don't want him to change the play at the line of scrimmage. And so that was a little confusing to me, but, um, it would seem like that's one of the reasons you go out and get a guy with that kind of experience is that he can help you play chess at the line of scrimmage. As far as the motion and stuff, I, I remember Reese running a lot of it, and I remember that being one of the reasons, and I remember announcers bringing it up, how much motion Reese ran. I haven't really tracked how often Jared Parker does it, how often he doesn't, so I'll let Tyler, I'll let you answer that part since you studied the film. Yeah, I don't I don't have data necessarily to to support my anecdotal evidence, but it seems to me that Jared Parker is doing more shifting in terms of pre-snap stuff, like where they'll bring four tight ends out on the field and they'll line up in like a goal line look and then they'll spread the four tight ends out or vice versa or different things. And it's not always four tight ends. I just know that they did that at least once against Louisville. Um, and then motion, you'll see a lot of late motion that is like a jet sweep looks, and that's not necessarily giving you enough time to inform what's going on with the the defense, and it doesn't seem necessarily like that's being used. So um, I think that is something that can be used. I don't know if that – like I – is is that really hurt? It, like, is are the struggles of Notre Dame's de- offense that they don't know what coverage that the other team is using? I, I I don't I don't know. It doesn't seem like that's the issue to me. Um, the issues I think are much greater than that. Um, although I guess that would be a bad issue if Sam Harmon didn't know what coverages he was looking at. But I think there's some trust that he he knows what he's looking at there. So I I don't know. I mean I I, I would. Be interested in, in in seeing it used more often. I just don't know that that's that's going to be like the the salve that fixes everything. Um, in terms of the checks out of plays, like like Eric said, that there seems to be some situations where he's not allowed to. I, um, for as much as Sam has experience, he doesn't have experience with this coaching staff. So I wonder if there's that is part of the barrier there, where they're like, well, and, and it's like, I mean, listen, we're 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 critiquing Jared Parker on all these plays where they're not getting into good situations on third and short. Um, and if they failed and Sam Hartman checked out of it, would they tell us like, would they blame Sam for that? Um, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, it's a Brian that's Kelly why, would tell us. <laughs> so maybe that's why, maybe that's, maybe that's why they are keeping what they want. Cause they don't want, they don't want it to have to fall on the Sam's shoulders. Um, if something goes wrong, so I, I I don't know. Um, I think there can be could be some opportunities to do that there, but I think it is more difficult when you got a guy in his first year in a system and a first year play caller working together than if this was 
Sam Hartman's sixth year at Notre Dame. All right. Next question is from Rick Dyerolf at Irish three, five, seven. I feel the administration at Notre Dame feels success is measured by how much money the football team brings in via TV and apparel deals, not paying the buyout for the Utah offensive coordinator is a prime example. Do you ever think it will change? I hope it doesn't change. Revenue streams are an important part of having the money to spend on the coaching salaries and other things that you want for your program. I mean, that's why all these teams are changing conferences is because the SEC and the Big Ten have better resources and better TV packages and so forth than some of the other conferences. Otherwise, there's really no reason for UCLA and USC and Washington and Oregon to be Big Ten teams. It's not because they want to take trips to the Midwest every year for mm -hmm. all their sports. So I, I do think that's important. Um, as far as the whole thing with Andy Ludwig, I mean, ultimately Notre Dame was willing to pay the buyout. Now, whether, you know, their version of the story is that Andy Ludwig went back to Utah, the Utah head coach kind of changed his mind and got him to stay. There are other people that think he was just turned off by them initially balking at the buyout and then coming back and saying, yeah, that we will. But I will say this, since that's happened, we've seen them pay large buyouts for other coaches, including head basketball, men's basketball coach, Micah Shrewsbury. And as far as Andy Ludwig, I mean, if that would have been a better deal, it's hard to tell right now. Uh, you know, Utah is really struggling. They're one of the worst offenses in the country. Now they haven't had their starting quarterback, Cam Rising, but I mean, he's having issues as well. Yeah, and I know it's like, well, you don't have your starting quarterback, you have a backup, but Cam Rising was hurt in the offseason. Like, it wasn't like uh, they weren't preparing for those backups to play. So, um, do we, I mean, we can't say with certainty that Andy Ludwig would be the solution to all these problems. Um, but I understand people, I, I wanted to see him as their name's offensive coordinator. So, so did I. I, I don't, I don't want to like act like I didn't. Um, and he has a long track record. I mean, this isn't right. This struggling this year is new. This yeah. isn't something he's had a track record with. And then as for measuring success by TV money and apparel deals, like Eric's right. It is important. But if, if that was the most important thing, they wouldn't be independent anymore. Cause that's not how you get the most money. Um, I think we've, I think anyone that's paid attention to these conference deals, um, would see that the money is just pouring into the Big Ten and SEC, and it's not it's not pouring in in the same ways to Notre Dame um, on the TV side of things. So, um, allegedly, the Under Armour deal is the biggest deal um, of all time, or whatever, for a ten year deal. But it's also a ten year deal, so um, you're locked in for a long time there with an Under Armour uh, company that doesn't seem to be hitting strides the way it was expected to the first time Notre Dame signed an Under Armour deal. So I, I I don't know that I necessarily agree with the premise of the question that that's all that, that Notre Dame, that's the only way Notre Dame measures success um, on the administration side. All right, Baba Ganoush at PLACT underscore ITFDB. Do we know the full story on how serious Notre Dame was with Colin Klein and Sean Lewis after they botched the Andy Ludwig hire? How does an athletic director allow his rookie head coach to rely on an ex inexperienced offensive coordinator who was demoted from that position at West Virginia for poor performance? Biggest waste of talent I can recall at ND. From my recollection... Um, Colin Klein interviewed first. So if he had accepted, then they never get to Ludwig. Um, as far as Sean Lewis, my recollection of that situation was that this was one of the people that were on their list initially to kind of look through. And they liked a lot of the things that Sean Lewis was doing, but Marcus didn't feel like it was a schematic personnel philosophical match. And so they never really went down that road and had Sean come in for an interview. Um, I do think that an inexperienced head coach and an inexperienced offensive coordinator together was a gamble. 
those guys do have history with each other. So it wasn't like Marcus was hiring a stranger. But um, I think one or the other probably works a little bit better because, again, a lot of football coaching is about fixing. And when Brian Kelly was, you know, the head coach, he was the backstop for Tommy Reese. He was the backstop for Chuck Martin, who didn't have a lot of um, experience as an offensive coordinator. He had been a defensive coach most of his career. Um, and then, you know, Brian moved him over to run the offense for a couple of years. So there's not that backstop for Jared Parker where Marcus can help him fix things. Uh, so that's maybe where I would, in hindsight, look at that and say, yeah, that that was a gamble. And it's right at this point, it's not paying off. But let's see how the rest of the season plays out. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we talked about this pretty thoroughly when it was happening. And I, I like it. So I don't know that I have anything else to like, there's nothing else like obviously we have some results now, but it's not necessarily like it's changing my opinion back then. Like I always, we always thought it was like, wow, this is an interesting move that they're they're going to to Jared Parker here, um, and uh, even as the offensive coordinator and title at West Virginia, he wasn't the sole play caller for very long there. Um, so I don't, I don't know, I don't know what else to add. Yeah, I mean, there's it was it was a questionable decision to begin with and the results aren't paying off right now um what what are your thoughts on the the comment that is the biggest waste of talent you can recall at Notre Dame do you feel like that is true um I I don't I don't think so I mean I, I again they're a 21st ranked team right now I I think the team that Sam Young was on in 2007 had a lot of talented players and they went three and nine. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, and there were draft picks, high draft picks on that team, but again, it was Charlie wasn't an expert on building a program from the ground up. He, he did great when he inherited a veteran team and he knew how to groom them, but uh, he didn't know how to build from the ground up and so forth. So I don't know. I mean, I haven't given that a whole lot of thought, even with the question there, I would not say it's the biggest. I, I would just say, um, you know, they're certainly capable of doing better than what they're doing now. Yeah. I would agree with that. Um, but yeah, I, I don't see a lot of like Bonif like sure thing NFL guys across this offense. Um, we would like the running backs. Uh, Mitchell Evans seems like a pretty good tight end. The receivers were all unproven other than Jaden Thomas coming into the season. Um, and even if Jaden Thomas was your leading receiver, did you think he – I mean, did he have Miles Boykin or Chase Claypool potential? I, I don't know that anyone felt that. But So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I necessarily would buy into the fact that this is a, a like a – tremendous waste of talent maybe the last two games have been um but even then like the duke game they didn't even have some of those receivers on the field uh maybe maybe the offensive line is where you would say like these are obviously talented players why aren't they playing better um and certainly sam hartman is maybe the most talented quarterback Notre Dame's had since brady quinn but uh i don't know i uh it's, it's certainly not going well but i think it's a little bit of a a stretch to say that, that this is the biggest waste of talent unless Baba Ganoush is like five years old. I don't, I don't think <laughs> it's a, it's a very young person asking this question. All right. Nathan Reynolds at enforcers 21 17. If we lose to USC and with the bye week being the next week, is that the perfect time to go to Steve Angeli and or Kenny Minchie to see if they can be the guy for next year? Do you think they would? Do you think they should? No, no, and no horrible idea. It reeks of desperation. It's one thing to lose games. It's another to lose your team. This is a surefire way to lose your team. It's also a surefire way for future portal quarterbacks to say, wow, look what Notre Dame did. Do I really want to go there? Uh, I think at NC State with Brennan Armstrong, they had no choice. They had to make 
Uh, and, and again, I don't, they're not playing for next year. They're playing for this year with who they replaced him with. I don't think Angeli or Minchie is a better quarterback than Sam Hartman. It would be just, I think, the worst possible idea that you could do. Yeah, I don't we this this comes up every time Notre Dame loses a couple games and uh I don't I think it's too much people trying to to bring NFL philosophies into the college football and it's just not realistic um the kids that are playing at Notre Dame right now have limited amount of time to play college football and there are guys that have put a lot of time into their program and to sort of bring in a quarterback who's obviously not better than the guy that's a starter just to figure out something for the next year is is a slap in the face to a lot of guys that are putting in a lot of time and effort to, to get the most out of their seasons at Notre Dame. Um, so I don't think they should, I don't think they will. And uh, I don't think it would go well either. I mean, Marcus Freeman has to win games. He can't just keep losing games. Like you don't get to keep your recruiting class. If you keep losing games, um, you don't get a better draft pick if you lose games. Um, so I, I don't, I, I, I don't know. Has anyone done this with the success? With success, I don't know. Like, what is the shining example of this happening at the college level? That is a serious playoff content that wants to be a serious playoff contender on an annual basis. That has done this. I'm not sure that there is one. Maybe if there, maybe there is one. I don't know of. If someone wants to provide an example, I I would be uh, happy to hear it. All right, last question, another one from Baba Ganoush at PLACT underscore ITFDB. Looks like the price of independence is one Notre Dame can no longer afford. Insisting on playing in Ireland when they have an eight-game gauntlet, are they that helpless in scheduling as independent that they that that's just the way it is? Got to take a toll on students. They're clearly gassed. Um, I... Baba Ganoush has been asking questions on our podcast for a long time and asked really good ones. So I'm not attacking Baba Ganoush here individually, but this, the whole conference thing gets humorous that when things go bad and, and even like people on our message board will do it as a joke. They'll say, you know, if the, if there's wide receiver injuries, they need to join a conference. Um, <laughs> If they join, if Notre Dame joined a conference, they would have less control over their schedule than they do now. Uh, I don't. I don't think that this is uh, because they're independent that they had to play the eight games. I think it was a choice once Notre Dame decided to play Navy and Ireland at the front end of the schedule. They had choices where to put that by week, I, and I don't think that they're the first team to play eight games in a row there's not been a lot of Notre Dame teams to do that and ideally you'd you'd have a different rhythm than bye week two more games and then another bye week and then two games that that's not ideal but I don't think it's because they're independent I think where being an independent where it is tricky with scheduling is you are limited with the opponents that you're going to get in November. There's a lot of teams that are not going to want to play the caliber of a team right. like Notre Dame, especially on the road, especially November. Yeah, I it's it's more it's more complicated than just being independent. It's also like, I mean, Notre Dame can't even get its annual rival USC to play in, at Notre Dame in November. So like <laughs> like if you can't get a team like so they already have rare accommodations as is that they're going to play in California to end the season every year. That's, that's something that Notre Dame as, as believes is an, an advantage to them and wants to do in playing at USC or Stanford in the final game of the season. So there are a lot of different things that go into that. And obviously because you're independent, you have some control over doing that. Um, but you do lose, I you do lose some control in terms of being an independent because of, the others, the other teams have their own priorities. The other conferences have their own priorities. I think the biggest thing with this year's schedule is that Louisville and Notre Dame have a bye week. They have the same bye week this year. So did Notre Dame and Louisville have to play this past week? Could they have played after the USC game when they're both scheduled for a bye currently? Um, I don't know what went into those conversations. If Notre Dame tried to make that happen and, and the ACC and or Louisville wouldn't allow that, 
Like what what kind of bind would Louisville have been in if it if it decided to do that? I don't know. I haven't I haven't necessarily evaluated that. Um so I I, I think scheduling is a complicated thing. Um I think independence makes it more complicated and uh I don't know. I no one seemed mad about Notre Dame playing in Ireland when that game was happening. Like I was there, there were plenty of happy people, um, and I think there were a lot of people afterwards. Like, man, that's really cool. Like only Notre Dame could do something like that. It's like, well, yeah, sure, but there's going to be some consequences to that too, and and not everything that you get to do as an independent is going to be something that makes you makes you have the the most manageable schedule possible. It, Notre Dame got in a bad place because Duke and Louisville this are better than they have been in, in recent years this season. And uh, those games being between Ohio state and UFC has, has certainly um, paid a toll. Um, and Notre Dame um, is in a bad spot because of it. But um, I think that's something you can survive moving forward in a 12 team playoff a little bit better. Um, look at what the big 10 and sec schedules are going to look like when those conferences expand they're going to have some pretty rough schedules as well. Um, yeah, so the Big I, Ten's the Big Ten released its schedule, conference schedule for the next few years up through twenty twenty six, I think. And yeah, wow. Yeah, and so you're like, man, that's that's pretty that's pretty tough. And so uh, you're you're going to have to get used to playing tough football games and uh, and earning your way into the college football playoff. All right, that is it for today's episode of the Inside Indie Sports Podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other popular podcast platforms. If you like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review, and share our podcast feed with someone who has good rain gear. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we're offering a 30-day free trial to our podcast listeners who want to try out a subscription to InsideIndieSports.com. So please take advantage of that with code NDPOD. That's N-D-P-O-D. We're rolling through our weekly audio and video content with the Inside Indie Sports Podcast here every Tuesday. And over on YouTube, we have Football Never Sleeps live every Monday night. Place your bets every Friday before a game and post-game takeaways late Saturday slash early Sunday following the game. And as always, stick with InsideIndieSports.com for all your Notre Dame coverage needs. (laughs) 